Hi everyone, I'm Luke Dinarona, lecturer at the Sarah Parker Riemann Centre here at UCL, and I'm delighted here today to be with Kojo Karam, lecturer in law at Birkbeck College, University of London, just down the road. Thank you for having me, Luke. This is great. It's really good to have you, and it's nice to be in real life. I was saying we've done all of these podcasts on Teams thus far, so it's nice to be here. Back in IRL. Back in IRL with the door open, so if it's noisy, that's because it's spring and there's some blue tits nesting in the wall, but... I'm sure you can abide that knowing that we're in real life. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the sunshine is worth it. <laughs> so we're talking today about your new book, Uncommon Wealth, Britain and the Aftermath of Empire. I mean, this book has made a big impact, I think. It seems particularly relevant with the current news cycle, which by the time this podcast airs, there'll probably be a new news cycle in which there's stories of which the book is also relevant to. So we had recently Rishi Sunak's wife um, and the scandal around her non-DOM status, which you talk about in the book. We've had stories in response to the Russian-Ukraine war about all of the Russian money mm-hmm. held up in territories and yeah. the city of London. Exactly. And, of course, ongoing debates about decolonisation and the kind of culture war. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think sometimes I feel like maybe I've got a friend in, like, <laughs> Tory party <laughs> central office because every week, whether it's, you know, them talking about their new education policy, which is going to be promoting the benefits of teaching the benefits of empire to Mm. school, whether it's the non-DOM status story, whether it's the protection of BP through the energy crisis and the refusal to implement a windfall tax on them, which ties back to a little bit I talk about the history of that company, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the Anglo-Iranian oil company. It feels like every week they're providing a new news story that has a bit of relevance to the book. So yeah, I never thought I'd be thanking the Tory party. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, in some ways, I think that's an effect of the book being broad in its scope and explaining a lot. So that's kind of where I wanted to start actually, is asking you why you wrote this book in this way and what you see as its kind of main intervention and to whom, you know, who are you speaking to? So I think the book was really written in response to a distinct political moment, which is the kind of resurrection of interests around questions of empire in not just the academy, but in the general public debate in the United Kingdom, particularly following the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020. You know, the pulling of the Edward Colson statue became this kind of totemic moment of this confrontation and recognition with Britain's imperial legacy and how it continues to inform our public space spaces, you know, particularly with the statues debate around Mulligan and Colston. And, you know, that's also been extended to different institutions like universities, most Mm. commonly, but also galleries and museums and schools and all these other cultural institutions have been going through this process of kind of decolonization, as it's been reported in the press. And that's mainly engaged in this perspective of decolonization that is a result of the decolonial turn that was taken in the academy. You know, we think about people like Walter Mignolo and the kind of cultural turn within ideas of decolonization. Mm -hmm. Once the kind of failure of that mid-20th century project had come to pass, there was an investment in ideas around decolonizing our perspective, decolonization of visuality, of ideas, of desire. And this has meant that now we've had this moment of decolonization. It's been really wrestling with that kind of symbolic realm, with that cultural realm, thinking about statues and names and ways of being in the world. And I wanted to kind of have a book that was in conversation with that, but also perhaps pushing that a little bit forward to return back to the material foundations Mm -hmm. of the question of the deconstruction of empire. You know, empire was at the core of it, you know, a material project. People did not sail all the around the world in order to exchange culture and statues with each other. It was about the extraction and the transfer of wealth and the way in which the entire debate around decolonization over the last couple of years has been had in the public sphere, I think has lent itself 
to allowing people who want to suppress the entire conversation around the imperial legacy to simply dismiss it as something that is disconnected from the very real material concerns that people are wrestling with in the United Kingdom at the moment. You know, this is not something that's connected to economic inequality or wealth insecurity or housing or employment status. This is something that is of interest to the chattering classes and Mm. of interest to, you know, university students, you know. I remember even reading um, Eric Kaufman, a colleague at Nurbeck, (laughs) writing in his blog that we need to push back against these strange beliefs of students like decolonization. And I was Mm. like, belief? Like, like decolonization isn't... It's not Santa Claus. Like, it's a real (laughs) thing that actually happened. Like, it's a world-changing process. It's formal Mm -hmm. register anyway. World-changing process in the middle of the 20th century where almost three-quarters of the world transferred from colonial subjugation to formal independence. Mm -hmm. And this is a significant part of our political, economic, and financial system. This is something that isn't kind of cultural belief of people. This is something that's tied to how our lives function on a day-to-day basis. And the ways in which the decolonization project was still incomplete, I think, has real, real insight into letting us know why the current concepts of neoliberal economic order take the form that they do. And so that's what I tried to do, just tell a little bit of that story Mm -hmm. of that. 20th century moment of decolonization, you know, the stories of your Krummers and your Manleys and your Mozadeks, mm-hmm. and then tie that back to a lot of the material issues that we're wrestling with today with wealth inequality, with sovereign debt, with austerity, with precariety of employment. Mm-hmm. So that's really what that kind of drove the book. It seems like you hear all of the conversation, all of the noise about decolonizing the museum, the gallery, the National Trust, about statues, about curricula, you know, and those questions have been really important to the formation of our centre, questions Mm -hmm. about curricula in the university. And you recognise that that all matters, but you want to move our field of vision in this book to things like tax havens, Mm -hmm. outsourcing, British overseas territories, which we'll come on to, financialisation, as legacies of Mm. empire and one of the things I found really persuasive about the book and I think it is a persuasive book I was saying to you just before we started recording that it's the kind of book I want to give to family members friends who maybe aren't already in our whether you want to call it echo chamber timeline within our circles on the left And I think it allows you to reach behind, including to those who are interpolated as the left behind, including those people who are, you know, in the towns, and to say to them, wait a minute, the legacies of empire are also about your life, and the struggles about decolonisation also matter to you. And if decolonisation would mean a more material sense of the institutional legal structuring of the world order and the nation-state system and the economy. So do you think this ability to, I always wonder this about you, do you think this reaching across, right, rather than just shouting it at one another or engaging the culture war in its own terms, this desire to reach across and speak to people who might be interpolated as the left behind, has anything to do with you being a scouser? <laughs> no, I think that's really true. I think it's, it's something I didn't realise, I think, until the book kind of was finished, to be honest. I, I do dip into a little bit of memoir in the book in order to try and, you know, anchor it in the person. It's, it's not a memoir book. It's not, you know, my life is far too boring for you to bother reading about for 80,000 words. But I do introduce a little bit of just the experience of growing up between a former colony of Britain, not just a former colony, but with, with Ghana, you know, the first African state to gain independence from the British Empire. So, you know, seen as this kind of like paradigmatic model of the development of the British colonies, you know, supposed to be the furthest along in this kind of development trajectory. And I talk a little bit about the way in which my understandings of global inequality and the role that empire played in facilitating that was 
kind of produced through this experience of growing up between the United Kingdom and this, you know, former colony of the United Kingdom, Ghana, you know, once called the Gold Coast, you know, that lets you know if empire was material, you know, there's no better example than, yeah, the fact that this place was named the Gold Coast, you mm-hmm. know, where materials are being extracted from. But it wasn't until I think I finished the book that I realized that a lot of the audience that I was trying to communicate to and was trying to reach out to was also the place where I grew up in the United Kingdom, which is, you know, Liverpool as a city was a place that has been since the emergence of neoliberalism put into officially, as we've seen from the declassified Thatcherite papers, managed decline. Mm. That's the name that it's been put into. The gutting of its industrial base and the expansion of precariety across mm. that city is tied to the defeat of democracy of the sovereign states in the global south which allows for you know what we then call the erosion of the social safety net here in the united kingdom and the imposition of neoliberalism and i think writing this book also in the aftermath of the 2019 general election which was the election of the left behind the red wall Mm -hmm. you know the idea that the economically abandoned North and, you know, the Northwest where, you know, we're both mm-hmm. Northwest boys now, you know, <laughs> taking up refuge in London. But the idea that these places have then been attracted to the kind of nationalist um, xenophobic rhetoric of the Conservative Party, I think did kind of strike quite deeply for me. And, you know, the place where my family are now in Merseyside, South Pole, is the mm-hmm. only seat in Merseyside. It's supposed to be this big bastion of Labourism, but it's the only seat in Merseyside that actually went Conservative in the big red war for and so I think yeah part of the book was trying to draw those lines and make it clear that people who are interested in questions of empire isn't simply questions of just race and identity but it is questions of you know how a resource is distributed around the world and particularly trying to tell the story of well what happened to all these countries after decolonization what happened to Jamaica what happened to Iran what happened to Ghana and why did what happened to those countries put in place the building blocks for the economic devastation that has been impacted on places like Blackpool and South Shields and Harleypool and all these other areas in Mm -hmm. the north. So I do think that's a little bit of why I tried to tell the story in the way that I did. Yeah, I love the vignettes. I really like the bits where you bring yourself in. And they're often short sections that, you know, you describe kind of growing up in the hospital, parents working in the NHS. And there are other bits of travelling to Ghana and how that dispels some of the myths that people in school might have about what Africa is like, (laughs) right? So they they were really great. They added a lot to the argument. And you were just coming on then to the point about the connection between what happens in the process after decolonization as the kind of sovereignty is wrestled, the potential of sovereignty is wrestled from the people of particular places and particular systems, structural adjustment, etc., et implemented. And then how that relates to what goes on in the UK, places like Southport and South Shields and elsewhere in the north, the Red Wall towns. I mean, reading the book, it's clear that you find the concept of the boomerang Mm-hmm. The thread that helps carry that argument through across the different chapters that might be on the border, the state, the city, mm-hmm. debt. So maybe you could talk a bit about this concept of the boomerang, where it comes from yeah. and why you found it so useful for this book. Yeah, so it's a concept that I definitely can't take credit for. It's been realised by a number of theorists over the decades. I think the person that I draw from, because I think that their analysis of it is the most potent, is M.A. Césaire, um, the Martinican philosopher, poet, politician, who talked about the idea of the colonial boomerang as a way in which to bracket the relationship between the violence that was visited through European imperialism in the colonies and the violence that then comes back 
you know, ricochets back into the European state. He particularly talks about it when looking at the rise of European fascism, looking at the kind of, you know, systems of dehumanisation and extermination and all those kind of population devastation that was visited through the colonial project, mm. particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, with then laying the groundwork for what emerges in Italy and in Germany with mm. European fascism. And, you know, he's not the only one who's used this idea of the boomerang. You know, we've seen Hannah Arendt use it, also talking about totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Michel Foucault draw upon it when he thinks about the kind of the policing and security apparatus of the colonial police and how that then feeds into policing, you know, back at home in France. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to use it to talk about those systems and those architectures of financialization and of wealth extraction and of, you know, what the political economist Quince Labodian describes as the encasing of capitalism from the sovereignty of the third world nations. Right. I think we need to remember how significant a challenge to global capitalism the decolonization moment was. You know, we now think of the world of nations as relatively standard, but prior to the mid 20th century, we lived in a world of empires. And the great benefit about the world of empires, if you're a global multinational company, is that you're operating under one jurisdiction. You can extract wealth from South Africa and manufacture it in India and sell it in Lancashire and bank it in, in you know, the Bahamas and you're operating under one single jurisdiction with the multiplication of sovereignty through decolonization, you then have all these different potential choke points mm-hmm. of global capitalism mm-hmm. where different governments can demand labor regulations, can demand tax demands, can place all of these different restrictions upon your ability to extract wealth. And so, so much of what happened in the aftermath of empire was the attempt to protect global capitalism from these potential choke points of you know what was then called third world sovereignty mm. in very explicit terms. And that has had consequences not just for the inequality and economic deprivation that we see in the global south at the moment, where we can see that most visibly, where we can see that in its most naked form, but it's also had consequences for the ability for people in even the United Kingdom, even the former heart of empire, to feel that they can democratically leverage power against global capitalism. You know, we need to think about this idea of not to kind of legitimise the rhetoric around Brexit, which obviously mm-hmm. had a lot to do with immigration and fear of the other, but I think within that kind of cry of take back control, mm-hmm. there is a question that we can then pose back to those of like, well, where did control go? Mm. Why do you feel like you don't have control? Why do you feel like you're not able to exercise democratic demands Mm. against multinational companies? Why do you feel that you're not able to restrict things like people being able to enrich themselves through the non-dom rule where they can no longer have to pay for tax upon the foreign properties they own overseas? Why do you feel that you're not able to challenge all of these material systems that entrench and protect wealth accumulation away from those democratic demands? Was because so much of that was put into place in order to weaken the power and the leverage of those initial decolonized governments. Now you've got onto questions of jurisdiction. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book was learning more about British overseas territories. Mm. Given we're thinking about how that transition happens from formal empire to various forms of variegated sovereignty mm. or void sovereignty, mm. empty sovereignties. What is the place of the Britain's overseas territories in that transition and, and what's their role today? Well, a crucial role. I think that they are perhaps the paradigmatic example of the incomplete process of British decolonisation. You know, when we're talking about British overseas territories, we're talking about 
14 territories that are spread across the world from the Indian Ocean to the Atlantic mm-hmm. Ocean. In terms of their role within global finance capitalism, the most significant thing we can say about them is that, you know, according to, say, the Tax Justice Network, the top three corporate tax havens are in the world all just happen to be British overseas <laughs> territories and the Cayman Islands, Bermuda and the British Virgin Islands. Right. We also know that Jersey, Guernsey, all of these other places play that role. And I think in tracing the history of some of these places, we can really see how Britain used some of the kind of instruments and tentacles of imperialism in order to protect global capitalism in that moment of decolonization. So to be a little bit more specific, we can mm-hmm. look at, say, the history of the Cayman Islands, right. which you know now is this kind of byword for you know unaccountable offshore wealth and this idea that well we can't hold accountable companies, whether it be Walmart or Google or Apple, because they're just going to put all their money in blind trust in the Cayman Islands. And yeah. once it goes in the Cayman Islands, what can anyone do? It's beyond the reach of all human mm-hmm. beings. But the Cayman Islands isn't this distant tropical paradise. It's a British overseas territory. Mm. Ultimate sovereignty over that island remains with Westminster until Jamaica, which is the country that it, the colony it was ruled in conjunction with. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even ruled as its own independent colony during the empire. It was ruled as part of Jamaica. Until Jamaica gets independence in 1960, the Cayman Islands is just this forgotten unconsidered backwater with more mosquitoes than there are banks. Mm. Once Jamaica transitions into independence and then particularly with the emergence of Michael Manley becomes this champion for kind of third world sovereignty at an international stage, not just on the national stage, we can see with the story of the Cayman Islands and also places like the British Virgin Islands, the underside of that story, the use of these existing territories that haven't moved towards independence to place themselves as these offshore options. These third, you know, people can look at some of the fantastic historical work of someone like Vanessa Rogel, who's really traced this, I think, wonderfully about, you know, when we're talking about decolonization, whether it's in Kenya, whether it's in Nigeria, we're talking about huge amounts of wealth leaving these places as the European companies and European settlers are looking to flee from these new independent countries. Now, they're not looking to bring that wealth back to the United Kingdom mm-hmm. because at that time, social democracy is at its apex. You know, Harold Wilson's bringing in a 95% super tax. Yeah. So that's not looking like a good option. Mm-hmm. They're looking for a third option, which becomes these offshore places like the Cayman Islands and the British Virgin Islands. And they now become the vanguard of this new architecture of offshoring of wealth, which places the levers of power firmly in the hands of multinational capital, not just against, you know, most prominently against the nation states of the third world who have been wrestling with these questions of capital flight for ages. Since the 1980s, they've had to exist in this position of subservience to global capital because they always know that the wealth can simply be extracted off to somewhere where you can't get it. But now we're also being at least presented that, well, one of the reasons we can't take such drastic action against the rich in society, you know, we saw the 2019 election, well, people will just flee, people will move their money. If Corbyn gets elected, everyone's going to flee and take their Mm -hmm. money to the Cayman Islands and we're going to lose kind of economic sustainability. But what we need to remember is these overseas territories, ultimate sovereignty relies on Westminster. The UK government have proved that they are happy to intervene in these places when it suits them. The Chagos Islands or the Turks mm-hmm. and Caicos Islands will mm-hmm. tell you that straight up. 
And so if we wanted to intervene and create a system in which this kind of offshoring of wealth, the stuff that's released in the Panama Papers, and we see just how deep that runs through our actual elite politics, if we wanted to create a world where that wasn't possible, the UK government, a progressive UK government, could take those necessary mm. actions on the first day of office. They choose not to do that because they are working in conjunction with the interests of finance capital and the role that Cayman Islands plays is very useful. Yeah. And you, of course, connect this to the city of London, this kind of system, this global system, where capital moves freely, is allowed to facilitate to move freely. Yeah. While many people can't, you know, think about people in Jamaica. And, and obviously, my research has been in Jamaica. Quite a few people who go and work in the Cayman Islands in the tourist sector, yeah. no doubt, because there's slightly more money circulating through that particular two islands or island. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about where London figures in this. And as a law lecturer, I wanted you to speak a little bit about the peculiarities of the English legal tradition, you know, on the system of common law, property law, etc., and how that shapes this story that you're telling. So I think that this is something that has kind of bubbled up into the public conversation with, you know, the sudden recognition, you know, before um, Vladimir Putin launched an invasion of Ukraine, mm-hmm. the Conservative Party and the government had no idea that we had all these Russian oligarchs <laughs> um, taking up residence here in London. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, they're all here. And so there's been this kind of, again, a little bit of a reckoning of, well, why have these, you know, kleptocrats of the world mm-hmm. decided that London is their ideal basis? Is it for the weather? Do they like Charles Dickens? <laughs> Do they, you know, simply, you know, did Umbramovich buy Chelsea because he was a big fan of Dennis Wise? Probably not. You know, it's because of the way in which the both constitutional and private law system of the United Kingdom has been set up to facilitate and encourage private capital. We need to think about the role of imperial wealth extraction as something that not Britain does, but something that produced Britain. When we talk about the history of empire, we need to remember that this precedes the foundation of Britain as a sovereign nation state. England already is in colonial relationship with Barbados and with Jamaica and with the Virginia slave colonies mm-hmm. before it has the Act of the Union, before even the English Civil War. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about kind of constitutional developments, you know, this is something I always try to teach students. We need to remember that whether we're talking about, you know, the Glorious Revolution, whether we're talking about the emergence of the House of Commons, we need to remember that this is happening in an imperial context. It's not happening right. in a national context. And that has influenced the way in which private law, particularly the law of property and the law of contract, is elevated within the English tradition as opposed to the kind of European civil law traditions, which is much more codified. You know, you have that system which determines all the rules, and if it's not in the rules, that's not facilitated. The English common law system works in the opposite of, you know, if it's not explicitly prohibited through the case law and not through the kind of written codification, we don't even have a codified constitution. But if it's not explicitly prohibited, then it's permitted. And so this is the reason why something like London's commercial court remains the centre for financial disputes between capitalists all around the world. Mm-hmm. 70%, according to the latest review of the cases that take place in London's commercial court, cases between companies that are in completely different jurisdictions, both companies having nothing to do with the United Kingdom, choose to argue it out within the English common law system. Mm. Now, that might be a great benefit to city lawyers, and that might be a great benefit to luxury estate agents who are around the city of London, but to everyday people who are now unable, you know, nurses, doctors, everyday people, even professional people, unable to have any kind of financial security in London because the way in which its role as the apex of financial transactions across the world has elevated the asset prices in the city, 
they've not really benefited from that mm. legacy of empire. I think someone just really worthwhile reading of the relationship between legacy of the English imperialism, the English common law system, and the kind of role of finance capital today is Katrina Pistor, the legal mm. scholar from Colombia, who describes the English common law system as the code of capital, that it is right. what allows the transition of raw materials, of raw resources into being assets. They need to be recognised within this rhetoric of English property law and English contract law. And so I think that that is something that was globalised through the Imperial Project and that continues to play such a crucial role in the facilitation of global capitalism, even in 2022. You know, the empire is over in a lot of ways. You know, there's no longer sovereign territorial control over you know, India and Nigeria mm-hmm. and Pakistan and all these huge swords of the world. But in terms of the reach of the City of London's financial, banking and legal sectors, we can still see that aftermath continue to inform how capitalism is distributed around the world today. Mm. The last couple of points I really want to end with is maybe to situate the intervention in this book, which I think you've explained to us so well. Within perhaps some other texts and debates that have at least come to my attention in the last few years, so the first of those is those people who've been thinking, and, and I think your book is a kind of historical corrective, even though intervention is very about our current moment, who've been also thinking about complicating or fleshing out the history of neoliberalism and neoliberal ideas. And I guess to challenge, you already mentioned Quintus Lobodian, who's one of the people on my mind, but who challenge a version of neoliberalism where it's just a kind of unleashing mm. of abstract market principles yeah. or even a form of deregulation, you know, a form of, there's actually a lot of legal process Regular, involved, absolutely. right? A lot of regulation. So I wonder how you see, for those who are interested in the history of neoliberalism or the development of neoliberalism, how you see your book intervening in that kind of set of debates. Yeah, well, I hope that it makes a small contribution mm-hmm. in that. I think that there is a real shift away from the kind of traditional language of neoliberalism, which was very much exploited and exaggerated by the kind of Thatcherite, mm-hmm. Reaganite, you know, Pinochet political representatives of that movement, where neoliberalism was all about freedom, it's right. all about liberation, it's all about the unleashing of the markets, mm-hmm. like you say. It's all about pushing away from state control. And I think an early kind of champion of this, which we often don't think of him as, but I try and touch on a lot in Commonwealth, was the person we often think of as maybe Britain's most famous racist politician, mm-hmm. Enoch Powell, mm-hmm. who on one hand, you know, was very much in favour of borders for people, you know, that's rivers of blood, that's all of his kind of campaigning about the controlling of populations within the United Kingdom. But on the other hand, with his work with the Institute of Economic Affairs, his membership of the Montpellerin Society, you right. know, that detail in the book, just a few months after he delivers a speech with the Rivers of Blood speech, he actually mm-hmm. goes to the Montpellerin Society and delivers a speech on the removal of the fixed exchange rate and capital controls. And so right there in those few months, mm-hmm. you see the borders for people and no borders for money. So, you know, he kind of, I think, really inspired a lot of Thatcher's framing of neoliberalism as, you know, freedom from the road to serfdom, as, as Hayek would say. But I think a lot of the work that's come out recently, particularly Quinn's book, which I think is outstanding mm-hmm. and was a big influence on this work, talked about the way in which, in fact, there's huge amounts of law craft, there's huge amounts of regulation, there's huge amounts of encasing of the interests of capital as part of the neoliberal project. It's anything but freedom. And I think what I tried to do with the book was a lot of that story, you know, has played, I think understandably so, a huge nod of the cap to the role that America has played within that and the role that kind of, you know, Wall Street finance has played in the encasing of global capitalism. 
I think Quinn does a, a fantastic job of tying it back to Empire, but looking at particularly the kind of the fall of the Austro-Hungarian Empire mm-hmm. and the way in which you know the emergence of the Montparnasse Society comes from that moment, that moment of panic of oh wow, like we don't have that architecture of imperial control anymore. How can we maintain the protection of capitalism away from all these you know greedy and selfish demands of the populace of the masses? I think Quinn does a great job of telling that trajectory. But I guess what I wanted to do was then extend that to particularly the British um, story, not on a kind of nationalistic basis, but just thinking about, you know, the fact that Britain at the turn of the 20th century was the largest empire the world has ever known in terms of population, in terms of wealth. The decline of the British Empire and the transition of it into being this kind of conductor of global capitalism all across the world, the City of London and the overseas territories, I think is a crucial story in that encasement and entrenchment of neoliberalism when we start getting into the 1970s and the 1980s. And so I just wanted to kind of Mm. tell that story, but also, yeah, in conversation and with reference to a lot of those other authors that you mentioned, particularly Quinn's work. Yeah, no, it comes through so clearly. And then finally, perhaps, one of the themes that threads across our podcast here is about, you know, histories, 20th century histories of decolonization. And there have also been a raft of books returning to questions around the 20th century decolonization, questions around independence and national sovereignty, around international society and world making, for example, in Adam Getachew's work. Yeah. We've had Nandita Sharma on this podcast who writes about the failures of post-colonial nationalisms in terms of citizenship and exclusionary migration controls. And our shared and dear friend Musab Yunus has his much-awaited book coming out later this year. So I wondered how your book intervenes in that very broad conversation. Of course, it's running alongside. That's precisely the point you make, the the ways in which decolonization and neoliberalism are kind of running alongside each other in the latter half of the 20th century. How do you think your book figures within that wider set of debates? Yeah, I think that's a really challenging question of where I can place the book mm-hmm. within those debates because I think that a lot of the debate is often centred around the kind of role of nationalism within not just looking at the decolonial moment but mm-hmm. thinking about the lessons we can take for it to inform a future politics and a future construction of a better society. Yeah. And I think I recognise, and you know, in stuff that we've written together, have also mm-hmm. pushed the, what Fanon would call the pitfalls of nationalism, yep. which I recognise is a big misstep that a lot of those first generation of decolonial leaders did make you know they did become romantically enamored with the potential of national statecraft you know did insist upon a certain uniformity of ethnic populations did insist upon essentially uh, what i say in the book of promising national liberation but delivering a lot of nationalism and not a lot of liberation and so this is all you know ideological missteps that were made within that 20th century decolonial project. I think it's what's really wonderful about Adam Getachew's book is to remind us that that wasn't the end goal mm. at the, in its initiative. That in, you know, the, When we look at Nkrumah and when we look at Nerero, you look at Manly, mm. that whilst they may have ended up falling into a certain national authoritarianism, their actual ambition was a more panoramic, world-making transformation of global society conceiving of the world and conceiving of themselves as part of this much wider post-national populace, whether that be Pan-Africanist, whether that can be the West Indian Federation, you know, so I think that Getachew is good for reminding us that it wasn't all just a romantic seduction with nationalism and the potential, the power, internal power potentials of nationalism. And so I think with that side of the story being complicated by Getachew, I also mm-hmm. wanted to kind of complicate it by just reminding that a lot of those failures didn't happen independently. They happened in the context of a kind of vicious counter-revolution 
facilitated through the architecture of empire. You know, I think that the story of Mossadegh and the Anglo-Iranian oil companies are a really clear example of this. You know, this is where the Atli government, the progressive Atli <laughs> government of welfareism and the NHS is supporting, you know, a naked coup d'etat against a democratically elected leader trying to do the same thing in terms of nationalisation of welfare that they're doing at home. And that's like a kind of crude example of mm-hmm. the counter-revolution that was impacted upon the new nations of the colonial world. And then it starts to get a little more sophisticated when we move into the structural adjustment programs and the weaponization of sovereign debt and the stuff that happens to Jamaica and Manlia that I touch upon in the fourth chapter. Mm-hmm. And so it was in that context that a lot of these missteps and mistakes were made. And so that's not to excuse them mm-hmm. and definitely not to recommend that well, we need to go back to that moment of making national liberation our horizon. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm advocating in the book at all, Mm -hmm. but I think what I am trying to do is tell a little bit of the story of the kind of tragedy of that decolonial moment, but mainly connect that tragedy to the tragedies that we're facing now with spiralling global wealth inequality, with accelerating climate crisis, with, you know, crisis of migration and bordering, with precariety expanding across so many different sectors in our society, tying all of these contemporary phenomena with that 20th century tragedy of decolonization, of the kind of death of democratic decolonization, and try to use that conversation as an opportunity to facilitate new political allegiances and new political relationships, where, to be crude about it, I think Mm. what I would love is for people, you know, in the United Kingdom and the left behind mm-hmm. to maybe read the story of Mossadegh and the Anglo-Iranian oil company and not think, well, being British, you know, I am in allegiance with the Anglo-Iranian oil company or I benefit from the mm. ultimate victory of the Anglo-Iranian oil company, but to recognise how the defeat of Mossadegh led to the kind of entrenchment and protection of a company like the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which we all know has now morphed into BP, one mm-hmm. of the big profiters of the current energy crisis that we have at the moment, mm. which their chief executive described as turning their company into a cash machine, whilst at the same time, you know, the British government refused to put a windfall tax on them, and everyday people are seeing their bills skyrocket month mm. on month. The reason why a company like BP is protected from the environmental devastation it's had upon the world with things like the Deepwater Horizon crisis, with tax avoidance and all those issues, is linked to the way it was protected from the Mossadegh government Mm. in the Anglo-Iranian oil crisis. And so what I want to do is to have people read that story and to recognise how, yeah, problems that they're facing with in 2022 are linked to some of the tragedies of that decolonial moment and to feel not a sympathy for Mm. the Iranians and not, oh, poor, these poor people in the third world and these poor people in Africa, how terrible it must be for them. I'm a good person, so I'm going to sympathise with them. But be in political allegiance with them. Mm. Be, you know, do what Fanon says of, you know, Europeans, you know, stop playing that stupid game of Sleeping Beauty and wake up and realise that your economic and political futures are tied to the futures of the people in the quote-unquote developing world. I think that's a perfect place to close out. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Kojo. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you making it all the way up north of the river. (laughs) Yeah, more engagements with the centre soon. Definitely, definitely. It's fantastic and great what you guys are doing there. Love it. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women's Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialisation. Or follow us on Twitter at UCO underscore SPRC.